Amen. Amen. Thanks, David. Good to see you all here this morning. And, uh, and I mean that. Missed you last week being out with the snow and ice. Um, something didn't feel right about not being with you last Sunday. And, uh, and so that leads me to say this. I think this is the first spring forward I've ever looked forward to because it just meant I got to see you guys an hour sooner. And so I uh, woke up this morning excited about, uh, about getting to see you and hopefully uh, you were able to set your clocks forward and be here on time. Uh, if not, then you probably think this is the first service. It's not. It's the second service. We're done after this. So um, either way, I'm glad to see you here. We're going to continue in our Unity of Faith series this morning. Um, we are looking at the ordinance of communion. And so we're going to get started in Exodus chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible, I want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got black hardback Bibles around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Those are there for you. Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, and we're going to start in chapter 6 in just a few moments. I'll give you a second to turn there, a couple things. First thing, I just wanted to uh, just speak a word of encouragement over, over us as a church, over you as, as our family. Um, and so I'll, I'll preface what I'm about to say with this. As a, as a church that has a lot of young families, one of the things that we're typically not historically strong at is finances because with young kiddos and young families, like that's a struggle in all of our lives. And so I say all that to say this. In February, um, we met budget, the budget requirements. So um, as, as you um, follow along, some of you follow along with that and kind of want an update on that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your trust of who God is, and I hope that that is a reflection of your joy and worship and the way he's provided richly for you. And just want to let you know that from staff and elders, we appreciate your faithfulness um, to the Lord in that. And so um, I want to express that to you. Um, also, um, as, as David prayed earlier, we've got a, a team of 17 in Flint, Michigan, uh, continuing the work there with Damascus Road Church. This is an area of, this, of the United States that is historically um, a hotbed for um, both poverty and crime rates, a lot of prostitution and narcotics in the area that we're in. We do want to pray for safety for the team. Uh, but more importantly, that the gospel would go out into an area whose identity is marked with prostitution, narcotics, and poverty and, and transition and transform the identity of that community for Christ. Um, our team is on the ground right now. Uh, Ken Forsyth, one of our elders, is preaching at Damascus Road. Pray for him and our team as they go out this week to serve that community. Um, and so I want to make sure that you knew that and, and that maybe even you would commit with us to pray for them daily in some form uh, that God would continue to use them. So let's get, let's get busy this morning uh, in Exodus 6. And so um, we are continuing our Unity of Faith series. We're, we're teaching through our statement of faith, the basic um, truths of what it means to be a Christian, um, these uh, basic tenets, non-negotiable tenets of our faith that, that mark us as a church. And so we've made it to the ordinances of the church. And so what we mean by ordinances are these. These are the acts of worship that Jesus himself ordained for the church to participate in from the very beginning. And so there are a lot of things that have, that have happened to the church over the last 2,000 years, a lot of additions to our worship, padded seats, air conditioning and heating, lighting, difference in, uh, in order of service and the way we conduct the services, differences in styles of music, instrumentations, uh, our clothing, a lot of changes in the way we conduct worship as a church. But these are the things, when we talk about the ordinances that were there in the beginning, ordained by Jesus, that should be present in any congregation that proclaims to follow Jesus as Lord. And so two weeks ago, we were talking about baptism, the ordinance of baptism, this beautiful uh, ordained act of worship that Jesus gave us as believers to participate in, to express our faith publicly, to declare to the world that we are his and our lives have been hidden in him and we've been raised by faith to walk in a new life. And so this week, we're going to look at communion. And a lot like baptism, communion has deep roots in the Old Testament. Uh, matter of fact, we're going all the way back to Exodus 6 to get started today to see this beautiful expression that's often called the Lord's Supper uh, or communion, where Jesus sat down with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, arrested, went to trial, was convicted, suffered brutally, and then was killed on the cross on our behalf. This last supper, if you will, is what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to start in, um, in Exodus 6, and so some backdrop to what's going on here. Um, the first 12 chapters of Exodus, the people of God, Israel, are in slavery, a slavery that spanned multiple centuries. 
And so for the people of God, um, they have been in slavery for more than one generation. They were beginning to forget the promises that God had made to Abraham. They were beginning to grow bitter towards God, beginning to cry out at times, yell out against God, to raise their fists in the air. If you're God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you not rescued us? If we are your people, why are we subject to Pharaoh's authority? And so in the early chapters of Exodus, the people are crying out. God speaks through his servant Moses. This is where the burning bush comes in. He says, Moses, I want you to say some things to my people because I intend to set them free. And so in what happens is God works through a series of ten plagues to capture the attention of both God's people because let's just be honest, like us today, it takes a little bit to grab our attention. So God does. He captures the attention of his people through the plagues, but more importantly, he captures the attention of Pharaoh. And through a series of plagues, the tenth of which being the death angel that passed through the land, striking dead in the night, the firstborn among every family, God finally captures the attention of Pharaoh, and he agrees to set God's people free. Well, if you know anything about this plague, God had spoke through his servant Moses to say to the people before this happened, you need to be prepared for this one, Moses. This one's going to capture not only Pharaoh's heart, but the hearts of every family. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to find a lamb. And I want you to, to kill this lamb. I want you to prepare a meal for your family tonight. And I want you to take some blood from this lamb. And I want you to smear it on the doorpost and the lintel and across the outside of the door of your houses. And here's what's going to happen. An angel of death is going to pass over the land tonight. And every house that this angel of death comes to that has been marked by the blood of the lamb, he's going to pass over that house. And every house that isn't marked by the blood of the lamb, the firstborn among that family is going to be struck down dead. So as we try to imagine that in our minds, what that must have sounded like the next morning as families awoke. Some of them who didn't believe God, some who had not heeded the warning or even heard the warning, who awoke to the death of their firstborn child, wailing, moms crying, and tears, and families in turmoil. And, and yet, for those who had believed God, he had spared their families. And so this captured the heart of Pharaoh, and this is where he decided to let God's people go. Get out of here. I've had enough with your God. And so as you can imagine, God's people didn't waste a lot of time, Right? I mean, we're packing bags and we're going. We've been waiting on this for several hundred years. Did I, did I hear that right? Pharaoh just said go. Dude, get your stuff. We're going, right? I mean, a cloud of dust behind. Our eyes are set, headed back to the north, back to the east. Let's get out of town. Well, before they left, God spoke through his servant Moses and said, before you go, I don't want you to forget this. And so I'm going to institute a meal, a celebration, if you will, a reminder for you year after year, generation after generation, from this point forward to remember that I am your God and I have delivered you from slavery. And this meal became known as the Passover meal, celebrating the Passover of the death angel and the freedom deliverance of God. Now, when Jesus is on the scene, when the Son of God puts on human flesh and comes and walks among us at this point in history, the people of God have been celebrating this meal now for 1,500 plus years. Okay? And so year after year, generation after generation, they would get together once a year to celebrate the Passover. God's freedom, God's deliverance, God making promises and keeping them for his people. So we're going to walk through for just a minute some of the basic elements of this Passover meal to more deeply understand what it is that Jesus is doing with his boys the night before he gets arrested. Because they're actually celebrating the Passover meal. This is where communion comes from. So in historic Jewish tradition, um, as you can imagine now, the Passover meal, even today among the Jews, has been celebrated for over 2,500 years. A lot of additions and nuances have been changed. But no matter where you go and celebrate a Seder dinner or a Passover meal with, with a, a Jewish person, here's some basic elements that you will witness and you will hear and you will see. So here's just some basic um, boiled down um, if you will, things that would take place during the dinner. So to begin the dinner, the father would start by ceremonially washing his hands and washing himself, cleansing himself to prepare to lead his family through this celebration. Oftentimes would do it even in a way where the family could watch him as part of the, part of the celebration. He'd wash his hands, he would cleanse himself, and then he would step up to the table and he would speak a blessing 
over the family. And this was at the point when he finished this blessing that they would take the first cup. There are four cups in the traditional Passover meal. They would take the first cup and they would drink it. And then from here, um, on cue, whoever the youngest speaking child was in the room, uh, a question would be offered up. And so remember, these children are born as infants into these families, watching this happen year after year, waiting for their rite of passage to get to be this kiddo who gets to ask the, the question. Here's the question. So the father would wash his hands, he would speak a blessing, drink the cup, and as the cup is set down, the youngest then would speak up and say, Father, why is this night different from all other nights? And so this would set the dad up to answer that question by walking them through the Exodus, the Passover, and the beautiful celebration of this meal. And he would walk through the elements and their symbolism and what they represented for the people of God. Of course, the pinnacle of the celebration was the lamb itself. And so for the Passover meal, they would, again, butcher a lamb to remember this, this lamb that was sacrificed to save the lives of the firstborn children. That was a huge part of the meal. And so the father would remind them of that, that it was the blood of this lamb spread across the doorposts that caused the death angel to pass over these, these households, sparing the lives of the children. The father would walk through the unleavened bread um, this unleavened bread has some really remarkable symbolism. As a matter of fact, um, Jesus himself is going to break bread in communion. And so they would have usually three pieces of this bread. It was more like a large wafer, the way they would cook this unleavened bread. It actually didn't, you couldn't tear it apart. You had to break it apart. Okay? And so they would take these three pieces of bread. They would sheathe them in a white, pure white linen cloth, uh, symbolizing the unity, if you will, of the three pieces of bread. And, and for them, they were celebrating the unity of the people of God, that they have been shrouded by the glory of God. He has wrapped them up in purity, and he has held them together. And not only that, but the bread was matzah bread. It was unleavened bread. And so for the people of God, so, so they don't have much time. And God says, prepare a meal. So they don't have time to let bread leaven, for yeast to you know, take, take root and cause the bread to rise. And so they're, they're making haste. They're going quick. But this became, became a symbolism for the people of God of sin. In the same way, when sin takes root in our life and we allow it to steep and we allow it to grow, it begins to what? In the same way that yeast will, a little bit of yeast will leaven the whole loaf, so does sin take root in our lives and spread its ugly fingers to every corner of who we are. And so for year after year, generation after generation, they would celebrate the Passover with unleavened bread, symbolizing not only the, the, the haste of getting out of town quickly, but also... This beautiful reminder that God's people are to live without sin in their lives. That when we allow sin in our lives, it takes root and it taints every part of us. But something else would take place. And this is where the dad would invite the children into the celebration. You had three pieces of bread. The father would take one of the pieces of bread and wrap it in its own linen cloth. And then he would place it on the table and he would break it. Bam! Into pieces. And then without opening it, he would leave the table and go hide it somewhere in the house. Now, the children are going to go find it later. He would set it aside, come back to the table, and pick back up on the symbolism of the Passover meal. Another component of the Passover meal was the sticky paste. Uh, they would make this almost like a jam or a jelly, um, and it was real sticky and tacky, probably had honey in it of some sort, some type of fruit in it. And so as the father would, would pass that around for everybody to, to take notice of and maybe taste a little bit of or touch it with their fingers, he would remind them of the slavery that day after day their lives were marked with one singular purpose, to ser serve Pharaoh by making bricks. And so every time that they would pass this around, they would remind their children, who maybe never saw it with their own eyes, that the, that the people of God before them had lived in such slavery where their very existence was to take mortar and make bricks. Year after year, brick after brick, day after day. Well, in addition to the sticky paste, they would have salt water there. The salt water served as two reminders. It reminded the children of the, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the saltiness of the water there. But more importantly, it reminded them of the tears that were shed and cried as the people existed in slavery. So one of the things that God speaks through Moses early on at the burning bush is tell my people that I see their suffering and I hear their cries for mercy. 
And so God was speaking through Moses through this beautiful celebration year after year. Children would learn of it with their own tongues. The saltiness of water reminded of what? The saltiness of tears. Reminding them of the suffering of God's people before God delivered. In addition to that, there were bitter herbs, usually horseradish-based, some type of real bitter type of herb. If you ever celebrate a Seder dinner, you'll never forget this part. A little bit is usually put on a wafer of some sort, and you're, and you're asked to taste it, to remember the bitterness of bondage and slavery. The bitterness of knowing that, that you don't have any choice over your life, that somebody else who doesn't have your best interests in mind is dictating your every Move, move. You're in bondage and slavery. And so there's a bitterness that wells up. And for the people of God, like many of our lives, a bitterness welled up against God Himself. And so the dads would teach the children about this bitterness how oftentimes when our bitterness goes unchecked, right, it begins to stir and grow, and even to the point where we become bitter towards God. And then the cups, the four cups. And this is where we're going to start in Exodus 6. So there were four cups in the Passover meal, and we'll walk through each one of them. But ultimately, these four cups represented this initial promise that God made through Moses to his people, all the way back in Exodus 6. God speaks a promise, and each one of the cups, as the Father would initiate, would remind the people who were in the dinner of the promise it represented. So we're going to go to Exodus 6 together, starting in verse 6. God is speaking through, to and through his servant Moses, telling him what to tell the people. And here's what he says to Moses. Exodus 6, starting in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now these four promises are going to be enveloped in that statement. He begins with I am the Lord, and at the end he's going to say, so that the people will know that I am the Lord. And then he's going to insert four promises. So he says, therefore, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and here comes the first promise, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there's a promise that God makes in Exodus 6. He doesn't deliver on that promise until Exodus 12. So there's a, there's a period of time where God's promises are incubating, if you will, unfolding according to his timing. And what that tells me is that it's within the character of God to make promises and, and for there to be a period of time before he delivers on them. And so they remembered that even while we were still in slavery, God was speaking promises to us. He promised to remove us and bring us out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But not only that, and I will deliver you from your slavery to them. So not only will I remove the burden, I'm going to remove their control over your lives. I'm going to set you free from Pharaoh's captivity. I'm going to set you free from slavery. The second cup. Not only that, he spoke the promise, the third promise, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now this word redeem is incredibly important for us to understand, not just the Passover promise, but the, the promise of communion. The word redeems means to, to restore everything that has been lost. God is not a fixer-upper God. It's not. He doesn't just come along and, and get the engine running just good enough to get us down the road. He's not a remodel kind of God where he comes in and just fixes things up in our lives. He completely wipes the slab clean and rebuilds new. And that's what this word redeem means. Everything that has been lost will be restored. So specifically in the Exodus, he's talking to the people who have heard the promise to Abraham Right? I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless your children. I'm going to turn your family into a great nation. And through your family, I'm going to bless the world. And now here they are in slavery. And what is God saying? I am going to redeem everything that has been lost. Not only that, the fourth promise in verse 7, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then he ends with, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This fourth and final promise, I will make you my people and I will be your God. Now this promise emerges quite often in the Old Testament and comes up significantly in the New Testament as we'll see in just a moment. I think most significantly 
hundreds of years later through the prophet Hosea, this promise comes back to the surface again. Where God reminds the prophets through the prophet Hosea, through his experience of, of, of marrying a woman and having children, he reminds the people of Israel, I have not forgotten that promise. I haven't. And so what, what God tells Hosea to do is to name one of his kids, um, have no mercy, which is what I oftentimes want to call my kids, but I would never put that on their birth certificate, right? So he says, call this one no mercy. Oh, this is going to be fun, right? And then he says, now this next one, call this one not my people. But then if you'll read through this beautiful experience of the prophet Hosea at the end, what does God do? He redeems. And he tells Hosea, no longer call this one, have no mercy. Now call this one, has mercy. And to the one you called, not my people, I want you to now call this one, my people. And what he's doing is he's using the family of Hosea to illustrate what he's promising here, that God is going to come to those who don't act like his people, don't look like his people, oftentimes don't even want to be his people, He's going to say to us in gentleness and love and through redemption, you are mine. You are mine and I am yours. And so God makes this fourth promise that they celebrated with the fourth cup. Now, after the father had walked through all the the elements and symbolism and reminded the family of all these things, you're taking notes, just making sure you've, you're, you're tracking with us. I will, this is the promises God made. The first cup, I will bring you out from under your burdens. The second cup, I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth and final cup, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Now, these were the four promises that rung true for the people of Israel. Year after year, generation after generation, the adults would pass on to the children these four beautiful promises. And for them, they, in their minds, they were simply celebrating a past tense event, not realizing that God was still in the process of unfolding his promises for his people. The Egyptian slavery isn't the only slavery that the people of God, the nation of Israel, faced. Several times they were exiled or occupied. Matter of fact, when Jesus, the Son of God, takes on flesh and walks among them, they're already under Roman occupation at that time. Still living in their land, kind of going about their lives, but the Romans ruled the land. A version of slavery was was in place even when Jesus walked on the earth. And so it wasn't just about a past past tense event, as we're going to see. It was God making a promise that he was going to fulfill hundreds of years later through Jesus himself. And so here's what would happen after the father would tell the story and remind the children of all the symbolism. He would start the meal with the second cup. And this would be the time where oftentimes he would send the children out to go find the broken piece of bread. All right, kids, you ready? Go find it. And so they would run around the house looking for the hidden bread that had been broken and crushed and wrapped and put away. They'd bring it back to the father. And it would be part of their Seder dinner, part of their Passover meal. So they would enjoy the meal. At the end of the meal, the father would mark the end of the meal with the drinking of the third cup. And then they would sing a hymn together. They would typically sing the Hallel, even to this day, Psalm 113 through 118, which is a big chunk of scripture memorization. They would sing that together. It was the Hallel, it was the hymn that marked the end of Passover. And so after they sang the Hallel, they would pick up the fourth cup, the final cup, and drink it together. And that would end the Passover meal. So now that took place, started 2,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. And after that had been in place for 1,500 years, Jesus sits down with his 12 disciples to unveil some things about that Passover meal. And it's almost as if the people of God had been celebrating the Passover meal for 1,500 years with their backs turned to the table. And Jesus invites them to turn around and see the truth of what they had been celebrating. And so he sits down in Mark chapter 14, which is where we're going to go next. Mark 14, starting in verse 22. Jesus has sent the disciples out ahead of time to prepare the Passover meal. A lot of things had to be collected and put together in a sheep, and all these things had to be brought to the table. And so now they're together. Okay, This is what we get in Matthew 26 or Mark 14, uh, verse 22. It says this, As And as they were eating, eating what? The Passover meal. Okay, So they had probably been through all that first part of the meal. 
Now they were to the point where they were released to eat it. He, being Jesus, he took the bread, and after blessing it, watch what he does. He broke it. And then he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And with those few words, Jesus unveiled 1,500 years of promises that God had made. Year after year, the father would break the bread and pass it around to the family. And year after year, they didn't even know we're celebrating the brokenness, the brokenness of the body of the son of God. And Jesus says what? This is actually my body that has been broken, wrapped, and hidden. And then he continues and he says in verse 23, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And look at what he says. Now for them, this cup, up until this moment, represented the blood of this lamb that was slain, right? To cause the death angel to pass over. And look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And in that moment, the Passover meal became a reality. As Jesus explained to his disciples, this is really what it's about. It's actually about me. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, after his resurrection, he's with his disciples. And, and the Gospel writer Luke records Jesus explaining to his disciples that the Old Testament is really about him. That everything God wrote in the law and the prophets and through all the poetic writings, all of that was pointing to him. And so in this moment, he takes the Passover meal and shows his disciples how it was all along pointing to him. And the four promises that rang true through the Passover meal ring true as we celebrate communion. And think about what that means for us today as we take communion, um, the Lord's Supper, some will call it the Last Supper. First of all, the, I'll say this, communion is a visible and symbolic reminder that God fulfilled the promises through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So every, take we, every time we take communion, we're reminding one another that God made and he has kept his promises to us through Jesus. Let's think about it. What was the first promise? That God would free his people from their burdens. In Christ, God has freed us from our burdens. What do we mean by that? I think especially in this day and age for American Christians, when we hear that, what we tend to think is that God is going to make life easy. Right? God's going to remove our burdens from us, so it's going to be like free time at daycare or recess, and things are going to go easy. God's going to make life easy. But when we read the New Testament, that's not at all what God is promising when he promises to remove our burdens. He's talking about something specific, a specific burden that we carry in our lives. I think to help us gain some insight, we have to look at the interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees. And so from Matthew 23, um, Jesus is talking to the people about the burdens that are placed on them by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They, um, they tended to operate with a, with a religious facade of high morality and perfectionalism. They were, they were performance-driven men and wanted the people to believe that they, had no, they made no mistakes. They were perfect before God. And so Jesus addresses the people in Matthew 23, verse 4. He says this, They, being the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens. Heavy, heavy burdens. Hard to bear. And they lay them on the people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. These were a group of religious leaders who had, had come up with a system, a system of rules and, and laws that, that allowed them to operate in a way where people thought that they were holy men, men who are righteous on their own strength. And these religious leaders would then take the burden of all this obedience and, and the shame of not obeying and place it on the people week after week, reminding them that you're unworthy. God will never be happy with you. You'll never perform good enough for God to be happy with you. 
And so year after year, the burdens were stacked up on the people's shoulders. God doesn't want anything to do with you. He's embarrassed by you. Your inability to obey God, how ridiculous, how dare you? Look at what God did. He delivered us, and yet you want to continue mocking God with your sin. And what Jesus said, you know what those, those religious leaders are doing? They're heaping up a heavy burden on your shoulders that they themselves are not willing to bear. And so the first burden is the burden of the law. Um, Jesus so famously says in Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, he says this beautiful invitation, come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus is exchanging the yoke and the burden of, of disobedience and shame and guilt that the people are bearing. He's pulling those burdens off and saying, here, take my burden upon you. Let me exchange what the religious leaders have put on you with what I desire to put on you. It will be a light and easy burden. I think at times, um, when we see Jesus' life fulfilling the law on our behalf, we're tempted to think that the law no, no longer has a relevancy for our lives. and we're tend, We tend to interpret our freedom as a sense of liberty that the law has no bearing on who we are anymore, which is not true. Matter of fact, next week we're going to come back and look at the role of holiness and righteousness in the life of the believer. So the law does have value for us. The law reminds us of the character of God. The law now reminds us of what we're being transformed into from struggle to struggle, glory to glory, victory to victory, moment by moment. God is working in us through his Holy Spirit, through the power of his word, to conform us into the image of Jesus. And so when we see the law, it just reminds us of what God is calling us to. Something good to be pursued. No longer a heavy burden reminding us that we don't measure up, but something that reminds us of the beautiful work God is doing in us, calling us into his own image. And so we get to the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 6, and we see a contrast between gentle accountability and the burden of judgment. And so the Pharisees were heaping up the burden of judgment on the people, and Jesus says, I want to exchange that. Bring that to me, and I'll place something on you that will be light and easy to bear. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church, this instruction. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, for the average Jew at this point in time, you talk about hair standing up on the back of your neck. Let's think for a minute about some examples of what these people did, these religious leaders did when they caught somebody in a transgression. Remember, remember the woman caught in adultery? There's an, there's an example of what took place if these religious leaders caught somebody in sin. They drug her out, publicly humiliated her in front of people to stand trial before Jesus, and they what? They had their stones ready to go. See, that's how the religious leaders operated if they caught anybody in transgressions. And so for the Jews, sin needed to be hidden. Well, anybody catching me, finding me out. And so, so the Apostle Paul says this. This is how the church is to operate. This is the yoke of Jesus. If anyone is caught in any transgression, oh gosh, stones? Well, what's going to happen here? No, here's what should happen. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I love that word, restore. It reflects the promises of a redeeming God, doesn't it? Is there room for accountability in the church? Absolutely. Is there, is there a role of the law in our lives? Absolutely. But not as a heavy burden or a whipping post or, or a manipulation tool to keep the common people down there while the religious leaders stand up here. Right? Causing people to walk in shame and guilt. It's not, it's not the burden of Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not how you're to operate. Remember the counsel in Matthew 7? If you need to go hold somebody accountable, how about you take a look at yourself first? Pull the plank out of your eye before you go to help your brother with the speck in his. Gentle accountability. A gentle reminder between God's sons and, and God's daughters that we are to pursue holiness in our lives a gentle restoration that says, this is what God's called you to. Here's who you are now in Christ. Look at what he says, the Apostle Paul writing in verse two. 
bear one another's what? Burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we do that? Gentle accountability. Walking with one another through struggles, helping each other see weaknesses, vulnerabilities, praying for one another again and again and again, forgiving one another again and again and again, serving one another again and again and again, loving one another, both in word and deed. Christ, God, has freed us from our burdens. And not only that, in the same way that the promise was made to the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt, God makes the same promise to us. We remind each other through communion that in Christ, God has delivered us from slavery to the law and sin. Slavery to the law and sin. Um, let's start with slavery to the law. The first four chapters of the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Paul is writing to the church to explain to them and to remind them that they have been set free from slavery to the law. They're no longer obligated to obey the law perfectly in order for God to like them. right? And they had, they had so quickly gone back to that mindset that in order for God to be happy with me, in order for God to, to work in my life, I've got to rely on my own religious morality. And so Paul writes the four, first four chapters reminding them, you were saved by faith. Why in the world are you returning back to a system of legalism, thinking that's somehow going to make God like you more? Your growth into the image of Christ has got to be rooted in faith, not your own effort. And so after four chapters of that, chapter 5, verse 1 begins with these words, for freedom, Christ set us free. He set us free from that system. Set, set us free. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of that slavery. What slavery? Slavery to the law. Slavery that says to you, God's embarrassed to be around you unless you are obedient. Slavery that says to you, God would never let you in his presence unless you are morally perfect. Paul says, don't you remember Jesus set you free from that? Why in the world would you want to go back to that? But not only have we been set free from slavery to the law, we've been set free from the slavery of sin. Romans 6 is a beautiful place to go and to, to learn about how before Christ, our lives were given to sin. And it played out for each of us in different ways. We were basically governed by our own passions. Whatever our stomach or our flesh wanted, we went after it. Romans 6, starting in verse 12. Paul gives these instructions to Christians. He says this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Look at what he says in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Remember when you used to do that? Remember when you used to follow the passions of your heart? You were essentially walking yourself up to sin saying, here, shackle me. I want to do what you want me to do. Sexual desire? Here, I'll be a slave to you. You just guide me. I'll just follow my heart here. Right? Indulgences in other forms, whatever they were, just willingly walked up and said, here, enslave me. I'll obey you, and I'll follow you. And what Paul is saying, don't submit yourselves to that slavery again. You've been set free from your bondage and sin. Look at what he says in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So as Christ sets us free from the burden of the law, he sets us free from slavery to sin. Verse 15. Well, what then? Are we just to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? So since we've been set free from, <coughs> from sin and the law, how about we just all kick it however we want to? Walking in liberty, nothing matters anymore. The law is irrelevant. Paul, look what he says. Are you kidding me? By no means is that what you're to do in Christ. Look at what he says. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves now to righteousness. So now this longing desire in my heart to pursue the law, 
this longing desire in my heart to pursue holiness. Do I get it right all the time? No, but that's not the system I operate in to make God happy with me. Because God is already happy with me, I now pursue the law because it's good and it's right, and I want to I look like God. And so as I pursue it, I'm saying, I'll be obedient to that. I can trust that. Thou shalt not kill, I'm, I'm good with that. Be faithful to your wife, I'll submit myself to that. But when we willfully and knowingly pursue sin, what we're saying is we're walking back to a set of shackles that have been unlocked, and we're saying, here, put those back on. I want to be your slave. And so as we celebrate communion, we're reminded that we have been set free from slavery to the law and from slavery to sin. We've also been reminded of this, that in Christ, God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We really need to spend a lot of time here. We won't this morning. One of the most powerful things about the gospel is not just that God forgives, but that he redeems. Remember we talked about redemption for the, for the people of God in Israel? Redemption and restoration of all the God-appointed purposes in their lives. This is a very, very familiar struggle for Christians today. Because of a past lifestyle or past activities, past choices, past relationships, there tends to be this cloud that, that follows us through life, whispering to us, you'll never be what God wants you to be because of the mistakes of your past. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says to us that when we believe in Christ, God redeems and restores everything that was lost. Everything. There are no damaged goods in Christ. See, the world would say to you, well, you're only useful as long as you can take care of yourself, make good choices, get on top, climb the ladder, look good, make people think that you're on, on top of your game. But that's not the system we operate in in Christ. Jesus comes to you and says, bring to me your burdens. Bring to me your slavery. Bring to me your brokenness. Bring to me all the darkness that you feel like clouds your life. Bring it all to me. And it's all or nothing. If you're going to trust me, I get access to every bit of it because I am a restoring, redeeming God. And as we celebrate communion together, we're resounding that promise that God is a restoring God. Marriages in this room right now need to experience the restoration that only God can bring. Individuals in this room who are still walking with the burden of shame and guilt on your back hoping nobody finds you out, need to come to the freedom in Christ and the restoration work of Jesus that only he can do in your life where he removes that shame and guilt and restores. Restores the joy, restores all that has been stolen from you. But not only that, in Christ God has adopted us as sons and daughters. Remember the fourth cup? He shall be our God and we shall be his people. This is where the, God, the, the, the promise that God makes that those who don't look like my people, don't act like my people, don't even want to be my people, shall be my people. Though oftentimes they act more like rebellious children and I should call them no mercy and not my people, to those very ones, I'm going to call them mine. And in this fourth cup, God reminds us, that's us. And so look at um, what Paul said to the, the, the Corinth church in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He's, he, he's talking about, some of you are familiar with, don't be unequally yoked. He's talking to the people of God about syncing up their lives, their philosophies, the things that they hold to be true, syncing them up with the modern day culture, syncretism. And he's calling them not to not be in the world and love the world, but to, to not be identified or partners with the way the world thinks as Christians. And so here's what he says in verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because that's an easy one, right? Nothing. They shouldn't look the same. They shouldn't smell the same. They shouldn't be the same. Okay, then. For we are the temple of the living God. That's what it means to be redeemed, to be restored. God's living in us. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so when God's people walk in relationship with the world in a way where we begin to look more like the world than him, we're, we're sinking up, we're being unequally yoked. But not only that, as Paul expressed in Romans 9, quoting Hosea, I want to read this to you. 
This is in Romans chapter 9, verse 23. The Apostle Paul is saying to the people of God, remember that promise God made? That you will know that he's the Lord your God, you will be his people, and he will be your God. Remember he made that back in Exodus 6? Remember how he reminded the people of Israel over and over again in the Old Testament? And he's going to say, remember what he said through the prophet Hosea? He's going to say, this is what is true for you today. God has fulfilled that promise in you. In Romans 9, 23, he says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, that's us, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So he's saying, I'm not just talking about the promises God made in the Old Testament. I'm talking about the promise that God has made for all people. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I'll call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. Verse 26, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be, there they will be called sons and daughters of the living God. Remember how the promise of Exodus 6 ended? And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under your burdens. Every promise that rung true through the Passover meal for the people of God resounds and rings true in communion. As we celebrate communion together, as the people of God, we're reminding one another that he has set us free from our burdens, the burden of the law, the burden of sin. He has, not only that, he has delivered us from slavery to the law, slavery to sin. In Christ, God has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and that in Christ, God has adopted us as sons and daughters. You see, Christ was unveiling all of that that night, that hinging moment in human history where Jesus stood before the promises of the Old Testament, the promises of the New Testament, and said, they're all pointing at me. There is no other way. There is no other way to to stand in God's presence, to be called his people, There is no other way to walk through this world apart from slavery but to trust in me that I might set you free and redeem and restore everything that has been lost. As we walk through our statement of faith, if you have seen our statement of faith, you look it up online and you look at our um, stance on communion, here's what it says. Now, I would say this to us too because I know we come from a lot of different backgrounds here at Solid Rock, a lot of different experiences. And so for communion, you may have come from a background where communion was celebrated every week. Maybe in a way where there was a kneeling altar at the front, and every week you came, you knelt, you took communion, went back to your seats. Some of you grew up in a a church environment where the kneeling bench was right there in front of your seats. And so every week you would come in with anticipation of taking communion. You would kneel, you pray, take communion. Others of us grew up in, in situations where we took it once a quarter. It seemed to have less maybe significance or emphasis or maybe more, who knows, so different ways, different frequencies, different right consistencies, how you can take it. But if this is what we believe is true when we take communion together, regardless of whether you're taking it every week or once a month or once a quarter. Communion is to be observed only by those who have become genuine followers of Christ. We're saying something with communion. We're saying that our lives are trusting in the work that Jesus and Jesus alone has done. We're saying that. Communion is to be observed by those who have become genuine followers of Christ. The ordinance symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body with the bread and the shedding of his blood through the cup on our behalf. It is to be observed repeatedly or regularly throughout the Christian life as a sign of continued participation in the atoning benefits of Christ's death. As we partake of the Lord's Supper with an attitude of faith and self-examination, We remember and proclaim the death of Christ. We receive spiritual nourishment for our souls, and we signify our unity with other members in Christ's body. This is what communion means to us as a church. So we're going to get ready to take communion in just a moment. And In Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth, he encouraged them to self-examine before taking communion. That you spend some time just reflecting on your own heart, where your heart is at. You spend some time reflecting on your relationships with the people of God. You look for maybe hidden sin that is taking root, unconfessed sin. You look for broken relationships that you've been unwilling to address or maybe avoiding. 
And before you come bring your gift to the altar, before you participate in communion, that you go and you make those things right so that you're celebrating what God is doing and has done in your life. And so we take communion here to celebrate our restored relationship with the God of the universe and with the beautiful fellowship he's restored with one another. We celebrate that in communion here. We're going to take some time now as, um, as we take some time to get quiet and pray. I'm going to invite our um, communion servers to go ahead and, and make their way to the back and get prepared. I'm going to ask Jason Lewis to come up on stage. And I'm going to ask us and invite you to join me in just some self-examination. Well, let's take a moment to get quiet before the Lord, and in a minute I'll lead us uh, in prayer. Let's take a moment where you are. If you want to close your eyes and, and bow your head, go ahead and do that, and we'll spend some time getting prepared. Father, our hearts uh, bow with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. God, gratitude and humility as we read the Old Testament and how rebellious and resistant the people of God were towards you, even though you were continuing to make promises to them, we're reminded of ourselves, God, how so quickly we are prone to wonder, how so consistently we raise our fist in the air in rebellion. God, today as we take communion, we're reminded that you make and keep promises despite us. So Father, prepare our hearts now. As we take communion in a few minutes, our prayer partners are going to be available at the back. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to hear this first and foremost, that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the grave to give you forgiveness and eternal life and to restore all that is broken. And that's first and foremost to us. And if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to get up and to go visit with one of our prayer partners and let them talk more about that with you and to pray with you. For those who are here today who are in Christ preparing to take communion, would you take a moment just to consider your own hearts? Would you ask God to reveal any hidden sin that is possibly taking root in your life and beginning to affect other areas and maybe something that nobody knows about. Did you bring that before the Lord and confess it? Maybe if you're here today and you realize that there's a broken relationship that, that you've been avoiding and so before you take communion in just a moment, maybe if you want to just slip out and go make a phone call or set up a lunch meeting and walk out the restoration that you believe in. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray for us now, and as I do, I'm going to ask the communion servers to take their positions. Let's, Father, we, um, as we pre prepare to take the bread and the cup today, we do so now with just an acknowledgement that this broken bread represents the broken body of Christ. This cup represents the blood that has been shed, all of it on our behalf. God, may you be glorified and lifted up as we celebrate in unison today the beautiful work of Christ on our behalf through the ordinance of communion, we pray in Jesus' name.